Amen. You may be seated. I want to thank Wes for filling the, the pulpit last week, or the lectern. Technically, this is a lectern, uh, so thank you, Wes. Uh, we originally had planned on going to a retreat over Cannon Beach, and then that didn't work out. And then we planned on going over to Anacortes for a few days, and that didn't work out. And then we were going to go to Montana for a couple of days because Don's mother's birthday was coming up. That didn't work out, so we just decided to get sick, and we stayed home. <laughs> so uh, that's the way that went, and you can probably identify with that somewhat. But uh, So thanks to Wes for that, and uh, we appreciate Grace Point Church and the time we had uh, off, really. Uh, the man up there in the picture, Warren Wearsby, some of you know him, some of you perhaps don't know him, a consummate Bible teacher, a Bible expositor, a pastor to pastors. Uh, he passed away last Thursday on the 2nd, 89 years old, had a tremendous ministry. At one time, he was the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. If you've been to the Moody Church, it is a great historic church, and uh, he pastored there. But I want you to know that uh, what we do here today is a direct influence from Warren Wearsby. He, excuse me, he affected my life tremendously. When I was a new believer, I was running heavy equipment in a logging operation, and I was in a logging camp near Libby, Montana, and we were building helicopter pads and decking areas for helicopter logging, and I was working by myself, and so I would take an early lunch, and I would jump. This was before satellites, young people. There was no online version of Bible teaching. I know that's a shock to you. Uh, back in the dark ages, the last century, I would jump in the pickup, drive to the top of the mountain so I could get radio reception on the radio in the dashboard, and I would listen to Warren Wearsby every day at 1130. He was on Back to the Bible out of Lincoln, Nebraska, and he was quite a Bible teacher, and he uh, <clears throat> impressed me and affected me tremendously. Another thing that he did for you is one time in my first church in the upper Midwest, uh, we lived in a village. They're not towns back there. They're villages of a population of 500 people. Now, you think Ephraim is small, but uh, that village was small, 500 people. And in our church there, uh, we had over 150 people or so. And I was kind of bemoaning. I went to a conference in Chicago, and he was one of the presenters, the speakers. And after he spoke, uh, he would hang around, very pleasant guy. And I got to talk to him and meet him. And I, I was talking about the smallness of my community and my place and he very gently but very uh, encouragingly told me that in God's eyes, there are no small, small places and there are no unimportant people. And so that <clears throat> simple statement affected me to this day because the current wisdom when I uh, finished graduate school was that you go to the places of population, the urban centers, and you go where the people are at. And uh, he deflected that for me very well. And so... Uh, I've moved from a village of 500 to a big town now of Ephrata. So you can thank Warren Wearsby for encouraging me to do that. He was not only a good Bible expositor, uh, but, and by the way, I said he died last Thursday. Actually, he's in heaven. Uh, Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And uh, so we know that he's more alive than ever right now. Uh, <clears throat> but... Uh, Warren Wearsby uh, was quite a humorist, actually. He wrote over 150 books, a large commentary series. And let me find, I want to quote him directly. Uh, but he, he had quite a sense of humor. And uh, one, let me get this straight here. Uh, 
when he was pastoring Moody Church in Chicago, if you've ever been there, it's a gigantic auditorium with uh, levels of seating. And uh, it's recorded that uh, one night he was at a meeting. He was preaching, teaching at a meeting at Moody Church there on LaSalle Boulevard. And he saw a woman sitting all by herself way over on the edges of the auditorium. And uh, he invited her to come and sit closer to the rest of the people who were there that evening. And she responded, young man, I've been sitting in the same pew for 50 years. And before he thought about it too much, before he caught himself, he said, my, my, you must be terribly tired by now. (laughs) And so he had quite a sense of humor. But he also was a very humble person. And uh, he wrote these words. He was reflecting on his own ministry. He said, I'm not an athlete. I'm not a mechanic. I can't do many of the things that successful men can do, but I can read, I can study, think, and teach. This is a beautiful, wonderful gift from God. All I'm doing is using what he's given to me to teach people and to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, I want you to know that uh, you are impacted by his ministry, whether you ever heard of him or not. Uh, And uh, still to this day, I will use and refer to his commentaries when I'm doing sermon preparation. All right. Well, that was just an aside. Now we'll get to something else here. Uh, In June of uh, 2017, this man, he's a 33-year-old rock climber named Alex Honnold, and uh, he scaled El Capitan in the uh, Yosemite Valley. That's that 3,200-foot-high sheer rock face. And that's not necessarily unusual, even though that that rock face in the rock climbing world, I understand, is considered the most challenging wall in the world. And that all good and professional rock climbers eventually climb this rock. And you've probably seen photos of them climbing. The difference with Alex Holnold is that he was the first person to climb this rock wall free solo, which means no ropes, no equipment, just his bare hands and his feet. And he climbed that 3,200 feet in almost uh, uh, four hours, like three hours and 55 minutes. He climbed from the bottom to the top. At one point, uh, it's recorded, and you can see some of the video on, uh, on YouTube if you want to take a look. A 1,000 feet above the ground, he was hanging basically by his thumbs. And uh, there's been a film done of this, but uh, he spent most of his time six years before living in his van, and uh, it's known as dirt bagging. He didn't want anything deflecting from his singular focus and his desire and his tenacity and intensity and his devotion to do this one thing that only took less than four hours. So he lived out of his van, and he calls it an intentional choice to prioritize your vocation. An intentional choice to prioritize your vocation. He said that I want to climb in the best places in the world, and that's my focus. So I'm willing to give up having stability, even having a shower, having whatever, in order to climb the way I want to climb. Amazing tenacity and focus of his vision in that sense. I think I have another picture of him. Uh, It's kind of hard to see, but he's hanging right there, and there's no ropes no pitons, nothing other than his own skill to keep him up there. He went on to write, I am probably the most intentional with the way I live my life than virtually anybody else. I have made clear choices about what I find value in, what, I, what risks I'm willing to take. I am doing exactly what I love to do, 
It's very easy for somebody sitting on a couch at home to condemn what I do as crazy or stupid, but I can justify all my choices. And then he asked this penetrating question, can you say the same about your life? Can you say the same about your life? Such tenacity and devotion. Well, we come to the book of James. If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, if you turn to the little book of James, We've been out of it now four weeks, and so I want to do a review. We've uh, covered the first three chapters, but we're going to go back and cover the first three chapters again, but not quite as in detail. We'll do a survey so that you are reoriented to the book of James, this little letter, and uh, we will begin there. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and truly, truly, you are the great Almighty God. There is none like you. And your Holy Spirit indwells each believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are our teacher, our guide, our comforter. And Lord, we pray today that we would have understanding, that we would be able to follow your word, and that you would use it and apply it to each one of our lives in the way that you want to apply it. And we thank you for today. Now we pray that you would teach us today. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. And so we come to the book of James, and by the way, if uh, James is written to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ already. If you have never placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believed in him for everlasting life, this is not the book you come to first, okay? Let me tell you that. Uh, you need to go to the Gospel of John, because we know that John is written as the Gospel tract, if you will, because John tells us at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, what his purpose of that gospel is. And it is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so uh, that is the place you need to start if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, exhort you to read the Gospel of John. Whether you believe there's a God or not, the fact is, is you still have to deal with this as a historical piece of literature that's been around a couple thousand years and deal with the fact that many, many, many people have believed in Jesus for everlasting life. And then the objective reality is deal with the empty tomb. There was an empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday, and that's the objective reality. No matter what you may say or think, you have to deal with that historical event. So anyway, if you are not a believer here today in Jesus Christ, read the Gospel of John because James gets a little scary because James gets tenacious and he gets devoted to what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and what kind of life that that should lead to. And that's why we ask the question, let me see if I, yeah, James, how shall we then live? You know, he is not concerned with our initial belief in Jesus Christ, although he mentions it once, but he is concerned with how we live out that life as believers in Jesus Christ. We dare not be like the student who, when his teacher asked him the question, are you ignorant or just apathetic? And the student said, I don't know and I don't care. (laughs) So we don't want to be like that when it comes to God's word to the Bible. And uh, sometimes that is an easy excuse. And that we want we want to be courageous and have conviction and compassion for the world around us as we look at God's word today. The book of James uh, is really the voice of a great Christian leader. Just a quick review: James is the half brother of Jesus, the younger half brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church at Jerusalem, the early church at Jerusalem, and the recipients. If you notice again in verse one, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad greetings. Then he goes on, considered all joy, my brethren. 
So we know that these are Jewish believers because this is very early in the beginning of the church. Remember, the church began in Acts chapter 2, and James doesn't cover anything that occurs after Acts chapter 9. And so in the history of the church, James was a letter, in fact, it's the earliest letter written in our New Testament. I believe, and many scholars believe, is written between A.D. 44 and 46. I believe it can be dated much earlier, between 34 and 35, maybe 36. Remember, Christ was crucified on April 3rd of A.D. 33, and then 50 days later was the day of Pentecost. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2, which was the beginning of the church age because the Holy Spirit came down and indwelt believers in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. But primarily, it was a Jewish church, and at the time James wrote early, this early, it was not seen as a separate entity from Judaism. It was, it was just a, a sect or an offshoot, if you will, of Judaism. And yet, uh, it would wait uh, Paul's definition, the Apostle Paul, as he came and wrote Romans and Galatians and Corinthians and all those letters to clarify this Gentile movement. And so, uh, James is a great Christian leader, and it's written to these 12 tribes that are dispersed abroad. Now, we can read about that in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Because of persecution, the early church was scattered abroad. And they primarily, many of these uh, believers, these Hebrew believers, went east out of Jerusalem and settled in other areas. And so they were probably in small groups, and James is writing to them because there were difficulties and problems. Even though they believed in Jesus as their Messiah, they had difficulties and problems in how to live out their faith. And, and James is correcting this. Remember, James is a book about ethics. It's about ethical living. It's not a doctrinal book. It's about the practical application of the Christian faith. In fact, you can title James, Serving Faith is what it's about, about serving faith once you're already a believer, whereas Romans is saving faith. In other words, about justification, about coming to know Jesus for everlasting life. So uh, it was the earliest book in the New Testament. The next earliest one is Galatians, which was written about A.D. 49, and the purpose is, is to live out the faith you profess to possess. Did you get that? Live out your faith that you profess to possess. In other words, put shoe leather on what you say you believe. And this is what James is concerned about. James wants us to grow up in Christ and mature in Christ. So it is a practical application of the Christian faith. And so when our faith is tested, he begins right away in verses chapter 1, 1 through 18. The first part of this is introductory material, and he's talking about the genuine faith, the quality of our faith, and what it means. And it is tested because we have trials in our lives. Now, we need to make the differentiation between trials and temptation because James does so here in this first chapter. James introduces his first subject, outward tests of faith, the purpose of trials. We are not exempt as human beings from having trials in our life. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, let me read just a couple of verses. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Oftentimes, we don't consider it a very joyful thing, do we? And so he says, knowing that the testing of your faith, that is the key fact here is that we need to mentally grab this and know it, knowing that the testing of your faith, what does it do? Produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete means maturing. 
As I watched our grandchildren who were were here on Easter, they are growing up. We only see them uh, every few months, and it's amazing how much they change and mature physically and emotionally and joyfully, and it is a fun thing to watch, and that's what James wants us to grow up. So this testing produces endurance. When I was 11 years old living in Denver, Colorado, I got a paper route. I delivered the local newspaper, the Denver Post, every day after school. And then on Sundays, it was a morning paper, so I'd get up at 4 in the morning, and my papers were dropped off by the guy in the van, and I would go deliver them. I had about 200 customers on my route. And my mom didn't drive me around. I had a bicycle in the summer, and in the winter, if the snow was bad, I had a sled that I piled all the papers on, and I would deliver to all these customers every day of the week. And I would start to complain about it and whine about it. I did it for a couple of years. And my mom's always, her main response was, it'll make a man out of you. It'll make a man out of you. She, she just, she didn't have a lot of sympathy for my whining. I don't know why, you know. But uh, there was something about the testing that I was going through of that trial, of that delivering those papers. It taught me something about endurance, about maturity, and which carried through, which I didn't believe at the time, but it has helped me to persevere in difficult times and trials in my life. She was right. And those trials are designed to produce mature endurance in the sense that we depend upon God. When trials in our lives, oftentimes we think, oh, God, where are you or why are you punishing me, isn't it? And yet it is providing us with a maturing system of dependence upon God, and that we turn to God in those times for wisdom and enablement. Look at verse 12 with me. Blessed is the man, and by the way, that's either gender, who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's talking about this long view of life. In the midst of trials, there is more to come, there is more to come in a positive way, and we have a blessing of that. And then he goes on in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 1, the source of temptations, because uh, the challenge is, is that we don't start blaming God for our temptations. In verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And then James warns us, but each one is tempted when he is carried and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, we know he's addressing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are secure in their faith. They are secure in their salvation. They have a future and a hope. But he's warning them that the fact is that if we give in to our own lusts and our temptations, that God will deal with that. We will, as Hebrews tells us, he will discipline us. And as Paul tells us in Corinthians, some believers even died early because they were in rebellious sin. And so we have outward uh, trials, but inward temptations in these verses. And this is the one that bestows in verse 17, every good gift. God does not tempt us. And we must check these things at an early stage, or they may result in disastrous consequences, not only for us individuals, but also for those around us. And so first of all, faith perseveres under trials and resists temptations. Faith perseveres under trials and resists temptations. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 318, actually, James can be divided into three major parts. 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is introductory material, and then the bulk of this letter, clear to chapter 5, verse 6, is the what we would call the body of the letter, and then there's a conclusion at the end of chapter 5. But since we've only gone through chapter 3, we are just going to look through chapter 3. And we ask the question, what does faith look like? What what should our faith look like in chapter 119 through 318? And there's a central portion right here in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, where he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, again addressing Christians, but everyone must be, listen to these three things, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so you can basically outline the book of James with those three things, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James is addressing it, which gives us a hint. It gives us an insight into what the problems were in these congregations of believers that were scattered around. Quickness of hearing involves an obedient response to God's word. Uh, True hearing means that we are listening to his word and receiving it and allowing him to apply it in our lives. That's why we read the word on our own. We listen to sermons. We listen to Bible teaching. And he states this principle In verses 21 and 22, look at those verses. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, we talked about this, about the five occurrences of the English word save in the book of James. And we've demonstrated that all of them refer to the fact of not uh, salvation from hell, but salvation in this world from uh, the, the discipline of God in our lives. And he talks about the word being implanted. The word is implanted only in believers, not in people who do not know Jesus as their Savior. And then he uses an illustration of a mirror. If we look at a mirror and go away, we're like a man who looks in the word and then goes away without thinking about it and not doing anything about it, and he applies it there. So faith responds to the word of God. Faith responds to the word of God. Thirdly, uh, faith, or secondly, faith removes discriminations. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is a fairly large section, and he's warning us against partiality. And he uses the rich and the poor coming into the congregation there. And he's deflecting partiality or removing discriminations. James 2, 1 says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. A genuine faith should produce a change in attitude about other people. Uh, And uh, that is one of the keys today, especially as we see great changes in our society and our culture. In James 2, 8 and 9, he tells us, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, are convicted by the law's transgressors. James 2.12, so speak and so act. He's very concerned about what we say matches up with how we live and to those who are being judged by the law of liberty. So he's primarily concerned about how we treat other people here. This is very ethical teaching. So whether it's social standing, racial origin, nationality, gender, all those things that are hot buttons, hot topics in our world today, we as believers are to live differently. And sad to say, as I look at social media, many believers are not paying attention to this portion of Scripture as they rip people of other nationalities and all all that thing and social standing, nationality, racial origin, 
And so we need to recognize that if we have true faith, it's going to overcome our prejudices. It's interesting that everywhere I've lived, there's been some form of prejudice, racial prejudice, everywhere I've lived. In Colorado, it was against the Hispanics and the African Americans. In Montana, it was uh, uh, the Native Americans here, be Hispanics, Native Americans. Uh, in Texas, obviously, it was uh, African Americans. Everywhere. It is a curse, and we as believers need to leave that behind if we have prejudice in our lives. God does not uh, condone that at all. In fact, it's one thing about the church. You know, the church is not a national organization or an ethnic or a racial organization. It is worldwide. It is transnational, transethnic, transracial, all of those things. The church is around the world. Faith produces, <clears throat> removes discriminations. It overcomes prejudice. Thirdly, faith produces acts of obedience in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It's interesting that in the book of James, uh, the word faith, the English word faith, occurs 16 times. And here, 11 of those times are in this portion of James, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So you get the idea what he's emphasizing here is our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. True faith results in actions. The productivity of our faith is important. Notice in this much disputed passage, in fact, uh, Roman Catholicism uses this, uh, this uh, book and this passage to uh, try to prove that works are required for eternal salvation. And Reformed theology does the same thing. They proof text verse 14. What use is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing, and he goes on to illustrate it in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith that has no works is dead, being by itself. Remember, he is dressing people who are already believers in Jesus Christ. He is exhorting them to live out their faith, because he is using that example that faith, unless it is exercised, is useless or dead. He's not saying it doesn't exist. He's saying it is unproductive. It's like I used the illustration before. If your car battery is dead, it doesn't mean that your car ceases to be a car. It just simply means that it's unproductive at the moment, and you have to generate the production of that automobile. And he uses uh, an example uh, below of uh, Abraham and says he is justified or uh, declared righteous by faith and not by works. The Apostle Paul said that in Romans 4. But James says here in 2.21 that Abraham is justified by works. Who's right, James or Paul, you know? And, uh, but we need to understand that in spite of the apparent contradiction, Romans 4 and James 2 are really two sides of the same coin. In context, the Apostle Paul in Romans is writing about justification before God his being declared righteous based on what Jesus Christ will do in Abraham's time, while James is writing of evidence of justification before men. That's what James's concern is, is that we live out our faith before a watching world and that it coordinates with what we say we believe. And that's what he's concerned about. Faith produces acts of obedience, acts of obedience. It results in good works. Fourthly, faith controls the tongue. Chapter 3, very famous passage, 1 through 12. In 8 through 10, no one can tame the tongue, is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. And so we need Holy Spirit-controlled speech. And faith disciplines our speech. It controls us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. A living faith controls the tongue. A productive faith controls it that we are slow to speak. Back in chapter 1, verse 19. The tongue is a small organ in our bodies, but its power to accomplish great good or equally great evil, we need to be aware of that. Only the power of God applied by an active faith can tame the tongue. Fifthly, faith generates wise living. The end of chapter 3, which we covered a few weeks ago, there's divine manifestations of wisdom. And James contrasts seven characteristics of human wisdom. If you look at that, verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, jealous, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil thing. So he lists seven things of earthly wisdom or human wisdom, and then he contrasts it with wisdom from above, verse 17. It is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. So if you wonder if you're living wisely, here is a measurement, an ethical measurement from James's pen, whether or not you're living wisely or living according to what the world is telling us. So faith manifests wisdom in our lives. Again, one writer has said about the book of James, it it challenges believers to put their faith to work rather than working to prove their faith. And so that's important to remember. Uh, Back to Alex Honnold, I think is how you pronounce his name, the rock climber. Uh, He was on a solo journey. And... uh, He was one who was by himself. It was all about him. And yet for you and I together, even though we need to be tenacious and focused as much, if not more so, than the rock climber, uh, we are in this together. We are a community. And we think about uh, this rock climber, Alex. uh, He reports that that four-hour climb took 17 years of preparation as he prepared to climb El Capitan and a great amount of focus and determination. And for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that we are on a journey, we are on a marathon in this life, and uh, that uh, we also are in process uh, to see what God will do with us and through us. But remember, we are together. We are community as we go together. And so those six things, faith perseveres under Trials and resist temptation. Faith responds to the word of God. Faith overcomes personal prejudice. Faith results in good works. Faith disciplines our speech. And faith manifests wisdom in our lives. First three chapters of the book of James. And we will continue it. Not next week. Next week is Mother's Day. And as I looked at chapter 4, I thought of how would I preach chapter 4 on Mother's Day. You adulteress, do not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? You know, there's a time where I hope I'm being wise by we're going to wait a couple weeks before we go to chapter 4. And uh, we will do something else next week. All right. If any-